This is the We Spin Recipes podcast with Andrew Apanov. Hello everyone, Andrew Apanov here and this is a new edition of the We Spin Recipes podcast. I had a great week at the Bila Music Conference in Oslo last week, but couldn't release uh, a new podcast last Friday. Now I'm getting back on track with releasing episodes weekly. And so today in the episode number 29, we've got a great guest on the show, Aaron Biffon. He's the founder of Plate Loud Music and uh, the author of uh, a book called Musicpreneur. And uh, this conversation is nothing but inspiring and exciting. I really want to get straight to it as soon as possible. But just one little note. If you're listening to this podcast on or after March 16th, I encourage you to check out wispin.co. We, uh, we have uh, updated the page uh, and um, we roll out a new structure of, uh, of, the, of the platform. So it's all uh, there and uh, I will mention more details about that on the, on the future episodes of the, the podcast. I'm, I'm really excited about um, introducing some updates to Wispin. And uh, now let's get straight to it, uh, the conversation with Aaron. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Andrew. It would be really nice to get bits of information about what you do and on your background and especially your current projects, because I know that you involve in a bunch of really interesting uh, things that you haven't talked about, right? Sure. Well, I, um, I find myself trying to give a little bit of thought when people ask me what I do. It's, uh, I should by now have an elevator pitch, but I really don't. I find telling people that I connect dots, in my mind, is probably the most accurate thing. Because what I like to do is I like to look at projects, whether that's an artist's career or a band, whether it's working with a company whatever it might be, I like to look and see what are the dots that aren't connecting. And some of those dots are sometimes very clear. And sometimes there's dots that haven't yet been highlighted. So we have to be a bit creative to find all those dots. And, and the idea is to connect them to be able to reach the goals that are being set. And those dots could be, it could be companies, it could be sponsors, it could be investors, it could be opportunities, brands, you know, these dots are all different things but there's ways to connect them to reach the goals that you set. So that's kind of what I do. But the reality is, is that from the outside, it breaks down into many different things. And so my background might help to determine what my expertise is. And, and my background is, is music and marketing and branding. And I got started in the music industry as a musician myself. I started playing music when I was four years old, and I later on went to study music at university. I studied jazz performance, and I quickly realized that you could be as talented as you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can make an income for music just based off of your ability to perform. And so I started to look into the different ways that people could make money doing you know, things in the music industry, and, and that got me down the path of getting into the world of touring and understanding how those tours get booked and that kind of thing. And so I, um, the time when I was in, in university, I was going back and forth between Spain and Canada. I was going to university in Canada and my family were living in Spain. And so I was going back to Spain in the summertime. And one summer I was back in Spain and a friend of mine who was the event coordinator for a city in Northern Spain said, Hey, Aaron, 
there's this blues guy coming into town that I know you like. And this particular blues artist, a friend of mine, had given me a tape cassette of him when I was uh, 14 years old. And so when my friend said this guy was coming to town, of course, I was like, yeah, I want to go see this guy. And she said, I could probably even get you to meet him. And I was like, well, that, that's even better. <laughs> so I, uh, I went out to see the show. And when I got there, it was, it was kind of drizzling. It was, it was you know, raining a little bit. And my friend said, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to introduce you because he's, he's kind of an asshole. And uh, I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, he, he wants to get paid before they play in case people leave with the rain. In retrospect, I would tell people, get paid before you play. But anyways, that, I didn't want to give up on that. So I decided to wait in line you know, behind the stage after the show. And between it being a smaller city, bad weather, there wasn't a huge lineup, but there was you know, certainly a few people in front of me. And I remember everyone was asking the same fan-type questions. And uh, so I was thinking while I was in the lineup, I was thinking, hmm, what am I going to say to... Because I wanted to build some sort of a friendship with this guy. That yeah. was my idea, at least. And so as I was in the lineup, I was thinking, okay, what should I say? What should I say? So it was my turn. I said, oh, hi, I, you know, I'm Aaron. I'm, I'm a promoter from Canada. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, man, that was dumb. But as soon as I said that, it was like everything else didn't matter to him. All of a sudden, <laughs> he was actually giving me his full attention. And I was thinking, all right, well, I kind of have you know, dug my own grave. Um, I better keep this conversation going. And so he... This is a true story. He literally said that he was looking for someone in Canada that he could trust to bring the band out and do some touring. Now, I will mention this. This blues artist had written songs that Santana had performed. He performed with Santana himself, with Prince, with all these different people. He had recorded albums with Double Trouble, Jack Bruce from The Cream, uh, like just all kinds of people. So he had a name for himself and he knew a lot of people. And right. by the end of the conversation, he went to his soft case for his guitar. And again, this is a true story. It's almost unbelievable. It's true. And he reached into the bag and he pulled out a bunch of scrunched up papers. And he said, these are promoters in Canada that want me to come. And I uh -huh. thought, what? So basically he was telling me that he had a bunch of people that were interested in him, but he was looking for someone that he could trust to work with. And guess what? Those people weren't there in person. And a big thing about, you know, doing business is the element of establishing trust. And there's no better way of doing that than in person. So essentially, you know, the conversation went on and the whole time I was, he had a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I was thinking, you know what, it's the Jack Daniels speaking. This is, uh, this is not going to end in anything that great. But he said, do you have a phone? I said, yes. He got out his phone and I gave him my number. He called me. He said, now you got my number. He said, call me on Monday. This was Saturday. And so I phoned him on Monday. It was like Monday afternoon. I'd sort of told myself, well, you better phone, even though I was thinking that he wouldn't even remember who I was. And when I phoned, he said, Aaron, I've been waiting for your call. And uh, I was really amazed by that. Well, long story short is that was once, this was, you know, during the summertime, the following summer, I booked the band tour of Canada. And in the process, I, uh, the band had a single out in Europe, which was the lead singer with Devin Allman, who's Greg Allman's son of the Allman Brothers. And so I thought, okay, well, it'd be really great if we could have Devin sing in the band, being that that was the single they were promoting. And so the blues guy said, well, here's Devin's number. Give him a call and see if he wants to do it. So I, I thought, oh my goodness. And that's, you know, basically I'm getting introduced to all these different people. So I called Devin up and uh, I said, hey, Devin, um, you know, we're wondering if you'd be interested in doing a tour in Canada with, with the, you know, this blues band. And he said, I'd love to, man, but I've got my own band happening right now and I really want to make sure I'm promoting them. Is there any way that you could get my band some dates as well? And then that way, um, you know, 
we could sort of, you know, uh, collaborate on stage. He can get up and play some guitar through some songs of ours. You know, I'll get up and sing with the band, that kind of thing, which meant that I was actually able to go to the festivals with a headlining act. And all of this, you know, spurring from me kind of going, how, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Oh, I'm a promoter in Canada. And it really was one of those things where, you know, I put my mind to it and I did it. And that, that's something I've always done. I've always been very, there's that internal battle in which if I set myself a goal, I'm not going to be content until I reach it. And so even though I had sort of was faking it till I was making it, I said something and I stuck to it, which resulted in, in actually doing what I said, which later on ended up working with bands like Sly and the Family Stone and Johnny Cash's band. And, you know, the experience in the world of touring for me, I guess you could say grew. But um, in the process, I thought, well, there must be something else out there, too, that I, you know, I can learn about the music industry to make money. And at that point, I started getting into the world of how do you get your music in TV shows and film and advertising? And so I basically spent time trying to figure that out and learn who music supervisors were and trying to ask as many questions as I could to, to people that I thought were able to give me, you know, knowledge in, in that field. Yeah. And, you know, fast forward again, that resulted in placing music and TV and film. I built a catalog of music with artists from literally around the world. I, at this point, getting submissions from people and was finding success doing that. But then that in turn resulted in, in trying to understand, okay, well, um, how does publishing work and copyrights? And then all this kind of was getting out there and people coming to me about management because to manage someone's career, you need to know all these different parts and be able to pull them all together, kind of like those dots that need to yeah. be connected to give an artist a successful career. And so I got into band management and artist management. In fact, I managed the band, this blues band for a while, which was sort of funny having that tape cassette at 14 and then later on managing them. But again, through this process, I was learning how to do all these different things. I was learning about PR. I was understanding about branding. I was always looking at people outside of the music industry because I realized that the music industry was relatively small and that uh, music reaches every industry. And I thought that there was lots to learn outside of the music industry that would be able to impact um, what I was doing with people's music careers. And so I, 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 was, I was getting a lot of insight in the world of branding and marketing, of course, came into all these different things that I was doing. And so all of this, I guess, culminated in writing a book that I had felt was in some ways a way to focus my own vision or not even vision, but focus my own ideas on what I felt it took to create a career in the music industry. And then uh, I guess to mention what I'm doing today, well, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a, a number of things. I continue to manage and license music. It's, it's not a one-man operation these days, but I continue to do those things. I, I'm involved in certain elements of booking. It's usually, um, it's usually more than tours. It's usually specific events that, uh, I mean, I, I was recently involved in something in China. There's something that we're working on in Europe. Again, they're not necessarily tours, but they're specific dates for specific artists that I feel are exciting things to be a part of. I'm also involved in, uh, well, I guess with my book, my book's actually getting picked up in a number of different musical institutes. And uh, actually, they just used it in um, at Berkeley in Valencia not so long ago with uh, our common friend, Marty Francona mm -hmm. yeah. uh, was, was there giving a, a lecture using the book. And then I'm developing a few 
music business courses around the book for a few of these musical institutions. And then on the still musical, but I guess not necessarily the most obvious, um, are two projects. One is something we're calling National Chord, which we're working on with the Governor General's Performing Arts Awards in Canada, as well as um, Music Counts. And with that comes the Junos and Karis. And we're also, um, I guess, Heritage Canada. And the idea of the project is we are photographing 150 iconic Canadian artists, which range from, I guess, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, through to Justin Bieber. And this is to is one of the, I guess, projects for Canada's 150th birthday in 2017, which is when this uh, coffee table book, the art exhibition and the documentary will be released. And the Governor General's Performance Arts Awards are actually, they have an initiative called Arts Nation, which is how they're trying to rebrand Canada for 2017. So this project is part of that rebranding. And that's one of the things that I'm working on. The other thing I'm working on is a TV show down in LA, and it's called Nothing Before Noon. And we've filmed the pilot, and it's behind the scenes of a rock star photo shoot. And, and the first person that we interviewed was uh, Matt Sorum, the drummer for Guns N' Roses, Rover, The Cult and many other bands. He has, he's, he's part of a lot of supergroups these days as well. And we had Ben Shepard from Soundgarden doing the sound and uh, Nigel from the Choir Boys doing the interview. Nigel's like a real-life Spinal Tap guy, so it's really quite <laughs> quite comical. So anyways, that's kind of what I've been involved in. As you can see, it's quite a variety of things. Quite um, a few things, indeed. <laughs> yeah, exciting. And I mean, your story that you shared is just brilliant and it shows so many great... Uh, things that you can take out of it as a, as an example of not being afraid to take action and even the fake it till you make it uh, scheme can actually work out pretty well. So, I mean, it's just great. Awesome. And the things that you work on uh, right now sound excited and uh, it sounds to me like you have been communicating with quite a lot of A-list musicians and stars, especially lately, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, well, it's... I mean, I guess just to go back to the story, the faking it till you make it and, you know, going for things and believing in it. I think that a lot of what I have found, and that's probably how a project like National Chord, for example, has come about, is is I'm constantly looking to find the difference in a project. So whether that's an artist in their career, what sets them apart, what makes them different, you know, as a company, what makes them different. I think the key is to try and find your difference and then believe in it so that you can, I guess, grow that difference. And for example, one thing I see a lot of artists doing is they spend a lot of time looking at what other people do. So that might be, well, where are other artists placing their music, such as whether it's, you know, placing in TV shows, whether it's, you know, their websites, if they're a part of MySpace, I know that's sort of a dinosaur at this point, but, you know, they look at what other artists are doing with their music and their career as a way to, I guess, um, follow them mm -hmm. with the idea that that's going to be equaling success. And the thing that I find rather funny about that, or strange perhaps, is you look at all of these starving artists that are not making much income through music, and they're all following and trying to do the same as other starving musicians not making much income with their music. And yep. in the meantime, there's always someone who has found success. And that's always the first person doing whatever it is that they're doing, whether it's someone wearing a meat dress 
or whether it is, um, you know, a style of music, whatever it might be, there's always a first person, there's always a leader, and then there's a lot of followers that come afterwards. And, you know, when you look at the, the recipe of success for some of these artists, the truth is, is that, you know, you can come up with a recipe and you can follow that same recipe, but the one ingredient that you're always going to miss is difference because the more you repeat something that was different originally, it becomes more and more, it becomes the same. The difference has disappeared. And so you, you don't really stand out. It's, I mean, you don't really want to be the next Taylor Swift. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you want to be yeah. the new you. And I think that that takes an incredible amount of self-confidence and belief in yourself to be able to say, I'm going to do this and nobody else is doing it. And that might be, for example, well, I'll give you an example. There's a, I'm a juror for Factor and, uh, you know, we get a lot of different applicants applying for these grants and it gives, you know, an opportunity to see a lot of different artists and what they're doing and they have marketing plans and how they plan to market their music. Well, there's this one guy, Canada's West Coast, who essentially is a yoga teacher and he's got a lot of charisma and his yoga classes completely sell out. And he does this thing, it's kind of like glee yoga in which he, he sings, it's almost like Broadway meets yoga. So while, while he's teaching the class, he's actually singing these songs, like it, some of them his own songs, some, or it might be like a Josh Groban, you know, you raise me up or something, while people are, uh, you know, in some sort of meditative position. And anyways, he travels the world giving these yoga classes to the point where he's, I mean, there's, I've seen video footage of him teaching, I think like 800 people in Japan. And then he goes to some other area of Asia and teaches another thousand people. I mean, big spaces. And so this guy was promoting his music career through his yoga classes. So of course you get this experience while you're going to the yoga class. And at the end of the day, uh, you, you know, you're able to walk away with his album and replay that while you do yoga at home. And so again, I haven't found anybody, or at least when this person was at applying, there was nobody else that I could find that had this format of teaching yoga, singing while teaching, and then selling their music. Consequently, that's resulted in him building a brand in which he has clothing, the music, it's this overall experience. And I think, again, it takes a lot of confidence to sort of say, what is it about me that's different that I can pursue that is not going to be like everyone else and that I can really believe in it when I do it. And again, it, it takes a special kind of person. And a big part of that too is, is spending time saying, well, what is it that I do that's different? Or what is it about me that makes me different? And finding that difference and then understanding who the demographic is for that. So as another example, and you know, utilizing, I guess, yoga again, there was a West Coast band which uh, the demographic of their fan base, we, you know, their super fans that we analyzed were essentially women between the ages, I think it was 27 and 37 or 24 and 37. And, you know, looking into the interests of these women, the common factors were their lifestyle. It wasn't necessarily the music they listened to, but it was their lifestyle, which happened to incorporate yoga and, uh, you know, vegetarians and, you know, this kind of, I guess, almost cliche West Coast thing. But the point was, is that, what that meant was is suddenly we weren't thinking, okay, you're in an indie band. What are all the other indie bands out there doing? It started meaning that we were looking at it from the perspective of saying, okay, well, what is it that all of these super fans do that the connect them between themselves? And how can you tap into that? And the answer was, of course, you know, this whole yoga thing. And so we looked at uh, a company called Lululemon, which, um, 
I don't know how far around the world they sell their products, but they certainly across North America. And uh, their idea is that you're buying this yoga clothing, whether or not you do yoga or not, it's kind of a different matter. But the idea is, is that this is clothing that people that do yoga and live that lifestyle like to wear. And so we just, you know, we looked into how were they marketing their product? Where were they marketing it? How were they doing that? And thought, okay, well, that's kind of what we need to do with this band. We need to market to them the same places in the same ways and, and learn from Lululemon as to how they were marketing so that we could apply that to the band. And guess what? There really weren't other indie bands going down that path. You know, they're, they're all trying to figure out, well, you know, we need to be in this magazine or we need to be on this radio show or yeah, we need to yeah, be in this yeah. venue. Well, as soon as you start realizing that the difference that perhaps you have and more importantly, who your audience is, then all of a sudden you could literally say, well, maybe we can go to yoga venues and put on a show there. You know, those kind of things are, in other words, it would open up venues, partners, sponsors, all kinds of things that were absolutely unrelated in many ways to the music industry. But with the ability to go to these sponsors and partners and say, hey, we have this audience. These are the people that listen to our music. And guess what? They cross over, they overlap with the audience that you're trying to target with your products. We can, you know, group together and make an impact. And so, again, I know I'm, I'm sort of uh, rambling perhaps, but uh, it does go back some amount to this idea of, you know, the faking it till you make it, not so much, but the idea of, of saying you're going to do something and doing it and believing in it is hugely important. And that doesn't require knowing what other people are doing. And in yeah, fact, if you do yeah. something different, you're probably doing it right. Yeah, and, and no, I, I really like what you just said and uh, your examples. And when I asked you about the big goddess who you walk with, I actually was going to lead it to this uh, idea that many artists look at uh, the big stars and try to understand how they got there and try to find something that they can repeat or whatever. But it's not about the things that these people did. They were in their own times, unique. I mean, it's not possible to be in the same music industry as uh, when uh, some big band started and so on. But it's not about these things and not just about the luck. Because I think that if these people just would be starting now, they would find a unique way to build their brands again. Because it's about the mindset and I think it can be learned. And what you just shared, uh, it's something that I highlight all the time. That, I mean, it's a, it's a real issue that bands constantly and, and artists and musicians and producers, DJs, everyone is looking into what is happening in the industry. It's like everyone just have their heads just focused on this thing and uh, not looking outside of the industries. And uh, there is a number of different great markets. What's I'm really into lately for the last few years, I guess, if not more, is looking into how tech companies and tech startups promote their work and their apps and so on. You can learn a lot from that and what you just said. By the way, it's a new addition to my collection of weird combinations with yoga. In one episode of this podcast, I mentioned the example of uh, the Instagram user who uh, she shares um, yoga and craft beers, but... Your <laughs> music is anyway. It's a really good band. Well, I think it's um, you know you hear a lot. Bands are brands, and you know there's a certain aspect of perhaps the word brand that can make your skin crawl. You know because perhaps people don't relate it as being something that yeah. you connect to your art. But the reality is is that it is you know what you know bands are brands. 
And you have to look at it from that perspective. And every aspect of what you do has to align to strengthen that brand. And, and great brands don't connect the product with the consumer. They connect the consumers with the consumers and they represent them. And the, the brand is almost like an umbrella. And so, you know, when you take, you know, like a Bob Marley, I mean, he has his music and his brand has come to represent people and represent something. It's not just whether you like a song or not, it's it's everything that it stands for. And so again, especially with the music industry being the way it is and the fact that, you know, album sales are not what they are. I mean, you almost have to start off with the assumption that it's not going to be music sales that propel your career. It's going to be the experiences that you're able to sell. And so again, you, you have to look at all of these things together and how they all connect to make for a really great brand that connects people that, you know, that uh -huh, brand uh -huh. is the umbrella of. And, you know, I, I think you're right with uh, looking at startups. There's a lot to be said for how startups are successful and how you can apply some of those same techniques or methods or steps that they take to a music career. I think that, you know, a big part of it too is they'll, you know, you'll hear, is it what you know or is it who you know? And the truth is, is that I, you know, it, it's really both. I mean, you have to have talent. You have to have great songs. I mean, songs in the music industry are where it all starts, but you need to know the right people and you need to have those people skills. You need to be able to, you need to be able to meet people and build relationships, not meet people and piss them off or um, burn bridges. And I think sometimes too, there's such an aspect of, please help me, please help me. I need your help. Please manage me. Please book me a tour. Please, you know, this kind of thing that when artists go into a deal they don't consider that they need to have an equal value on their side of the deal to be able to walk away with what they want. And so one of the things I found about artists, and you know, this might be a little bit of a, um, you know, a bit of a blanket statement, but I, you know, through researching for the book as well, I, I realized that, you know, there's, there's a fairly low self-worth in the music community and, you know, this varies somewhat depending on your culture, I think, as well, and how mm -hmm. music is integrated into culture. But that being said, you know, if you've had, say, parents that have been encouraging of you to come out when friends come over and do your dance or your song, and, you know, when you're eight years old, and then, you know, you start to get serious about music as a career, and they suddenly start to freak out and say, oh, well, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of a hobby. You, you know, you're not going to be able to make money. Well, if you start to think that you don't, you can't make money with music, then, of course, that's sort of the uh, starting point at which, you, you know, you, you begin everything is, well, I'm not going to be able to make money with this. And so when you go to people that you want help from, you really feel like they have more to give to you than you give to them. And, and that's a really bad way to start any kind of a business relationship. There has to be that equal value. And so, you know, as an example, you know, I, I think that, you know, my approach has always been to ideally get into a business relationship in which you can say, this is what I'm doing. This is why you should be interested. And if you'd like to be a part of that, you know, let's talk about it as opposed to, you know, uh, please help manage me this kind of, I mean, you, you want to hear compelling stories. You want to know why you're going to help that artist yeah, or what yeah. it is about them that's going to help you. And so again, one of these problems are as people start the relationship with the idea of, wanting to get something. And I think that's a mistake. I mean, you, you need to build the relationship before you can ask for anything, which means, you know, if, if it's in business, you need to approach people on a more friendly level. You're not going to walk away from a first phone call or first meeting with a signature on a dotted line that's going to give you a million dollars. You know, you need to discover what each side of, you know, what, what you bring and what they bring and where some of those things, you know, cross 
And if, if people want to work together because they enjoy each other's company or what it is they do. I mean, I've, I've heard many times people say it's not the idea, it's the people. Yeah. And if you have the right people, you can make any idea work. And so, you know, there is a, um, you know, there's the golden rule, which is the idea of it's the social psychology that if I help you, then when you ask me for help, I'm going to feel, you know, unless I'm a psychopath, I'm going to feel compelled to help you in return because you've already helped me. So, you know, that yeah, again yeah. is always a highly important way to start things is by, you know, you being able to do something first. And I don't know if you want me to add one more thing to that. Absolutely. Um, feel free to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sure. Well, this is to do with perhaps networking a little bit. But I, like, as I've, I've been mentioning, I've, I see a lot of musicians doing what other musicians do, being where other musicians are, trying to follow in everyone else's footsteps and not making enough connections that are outside of the music industry where quite often money resides. And so one of the things that I found interesting was the, you know, learning about the Dunbar number, which is 150. And essentially the Dunbar number is this concept that we can only ever in our lifetime know 150 people well mm -hmm. so that doesn't mean you know an acquaintance i mean literally 150 people that you can more or less maintain a relationship which even that is almost impossible and there's companies that use this number which is this like gore-tex for example malcolm gladwell writes about this in his book i think it was outliers or tipping point which when the company reaches 150 employees, they actually build a new building and start a new group of workers under that roof. And that 150 number means that there's a certain peer obligation, I guess you could say, in which everyone knows everyone at the company. If you want to talk to the marketing guy, or you want to go talk to the, the product development guy, whatever it might be, they're all under the same roof. And it gives them that ability to have a certain element of, I guess, responsibility. You can't just you know, not do anything at work and expect no one to notice because everyone knows each other and they know exactly what you're doing and they count on you. And so that's one, you know, use of this Dunbar number, but it happens in, I think it was the, like, in, it's the same in, in the military. You have these uh, quadrants of 150, which again, same deal. Everyone knows each other. So there's a certain, you know, watching each other's back. And it's so sort of interrupting you that this app called Path, have you heard of it? It's uh, it's like a close social network just for friends. I think it uses the the number fifty. It's the maximum amount of people you can add as friends. But it's the same principle that you can you're supposed to keep it limited. But anyway, yeah, go on. I didn't know that. I'm going to check that out for sure. <laughs> well, all I was going to say is is that one of the things that I've thought is important is you know why not have a list of 150 people, 150 contacts. I mean, for example, I actually have that on say Twitter and other social media sites in which I have a group of 150 that are in there. And I always try and find people that are not within the same group. So mm -hmm. for, as an example, you know, you and I were talking earlier about having a, you know, we were part of a, a mastermind group and, you know, all of us in that group had never met prior, but we were pretty much all separated by one person. We all, there was always someone that one of us knew that the other knew as well. And so that would be a pretty closed group of people. If you're trying to, to have 150 connections, it makes sense that you go to someone in the music industry, someone in farming, someone in technology, someone in hospitality, some, you know, this kind of thing, because that's how you can truly grow your fan base and your personal brand. I mean, there's this whole thousand true fans that if you have a thousand true fans that all spend $100 a year, 
then you've got $100,000 income. And quite honestly, I think it's impossible to truly build a thousand true fans with a, you know, with a true connection, but you can with 150. But if those 150 in turn, you know, know another 150 and so on, it makes it a much easier way to reach those thousand true fans by being introduced by, you know, these friends of friends through these different groups. So again, I just, I highly recommend networking outside of the music industry in many, as many different industries you can, and that will help you spread your brand much faster than if you're just simply doing as others do in the music industry. This advice is just gold. Even I haven't thought about this exactly the same way, although I've been thinking about this quite a lot, especially when you get uh, busy with uh, a lot of projects you just physically can't communicate with uh, everyone who you, you would like to. But this approach, it's kind of... Yeah, it just makes sense. You know what I will do after we wrap this up? I will uh, do a sort of a checklist with all the insights that you've mentioned and I will list them because they have been <laughs> so many great thoughts, really. I mean, it. and um, I think this also leaves uh, the listener with like hungry for more. And uh, <laughs> I think that your book, Musicpreneur, can be a great source. But can you mention anything um, else that you'd like to refer to and to recommend checkouts among your web properties and maybe a couple words about the book? Sure. Well, people can check me out in a, f- a few different places, maybe almost too many, but uh, you could go to musicpreneur.ca. You can go to playitloudmusic.com. You can go to abovethenoise.ca. You can go to jamisgood.com. And uh, you can even go to aaronbethune.com. <laughs> and that will give you, I think, a pretty broad range of the things that I'm involved in. I do have a a podcast that I put out myself, which are interviews much like these, in which I try to to be really nosy and ask nosy questions and see what kind of answers I can get. And as far as the book's concerned, I know that at the moment you can sign up on at musicpreneur.ca and get a couple chapters free, but maybe we can talk after this and see if there's a way of making your audience get a better deal than that. And the book itself, it's Musicpreneur, The Creative Approach to Making Money in Music. And uh, it covers a wide range of topics. And uh, it's definitely, I've been very happy with the success that it's had so far. But I guess the one thing I could say that's perhaps more interesting from a strategy perspective and, you know, as a, a way of how I've been trying to apply some of what I've been talking about in this interview to, say, the book is one of the things I did in the book was... I inserted short links throughout the book. So you'll be reading something and I'll say, if you want more on this topic, here's a bunch of free resources that you can go and check out. And I installed a software on my website so that these short links are proprietary. proprietary. (laughs) And uh, I'm able to see where people are clicking on these links and what type of topics they're most interested in. And so Originally with the book, one of the things that I did was I decided to give a whole bunch away for free early on to see if the content would spread. So I was I gave away a set amount, but if I could see that the click rate and where people were clicking on, you know, was going up in big numbers, I was able yeah. to see if it was becoming viral or not. And so again, I tried to take an approach to the publishing aspect that I thought was a little bit different because I think just like a musician looking for a record deal, 
authors are quite often looking for publishing deals. And so I didn't want to contradict what I usually tell people. And so I thought, I'm not going to go to a publisher. I'm going to, when I, when I choose to go to a publisher, I'll do it with the idea of saying, hey, if you'd like to be involved, let's discuss it. And so what I did is I set up my own publishing company, which was a learning experience in itself, in which I actually went through all the steps to become officially a publisher, and uh, which is no small process. But what it's meant is, is that I have actually been able to develop the book, show sales, show where the markets are that are of interest, the topics that people are interested in. And this point has given me the opportunity to have discussions with publishers of which I'm still not that interested in. But with the ability to say, well, actually, here are all the sales. Here's how it's spread virally. Here are those markets. And guess what? I know exactly what my readers are interested in. So I could write the next book focused on what they've been most interested in. And so that the only reason I say this is that hopefully that perhaps gives an angle as to how I've been taking a book and utilizing a strategy to eventually either one, you know, choose to work with a publisher or simply to develop my speaking circuit or, um, you know, schools that I might want to approach with a book and that kind of thing. So I don't know yeah. for what it's worth. There's a little bit more about the book, I guess, and its strategy. That's cool. And I mean, the, the, fact, the, the fact that you implement the ideas that you talk about, this interesting way and you talk about this is great. I really like your approach to, exactly. to things. So I will keep talking about your stuff, the book, and, uh, you know, it's not cool to have so few websites. You need more domain names and new projects. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, uh, obviously, you uh, every single thing, and I'm aware about every project that you run, and they all have, uh, they serve a great purpose, and uh, I'm linking to them in the show notes, so I highly recommend anyone to listening to the show to check them out. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to anything new that uh, you come up with, a new book, a new, I mean, anything. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear your next podcast and watch the next Stand Above the Noise. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed your newsletters for years now. And so, I, as you know, I'm hoping to have you as a guest on, on my podcast as well. So I know we'll be speaking soon and people will be hearing from both of us soon as well. So, so thank yeah. you very much for doing this. Thank you. And yeah, to the listener, it was a surprise to me. It was not a pre-made deal. <laughs> no, no, yeah, it but... wasn't at all. But you know what? I, I, I appreciate it. It has to happen because, again, I think you're a fascinating guy. I've enjoyed your newsletters. And, and one of the biggest things actually is that, you know, we're on different continents. And it's so easy to assume that what you do in your own area is what the rest of the world is doing. And it's very... That's not the case at all. And, and I think, too, when, when you start talking to people in Europe where drinking laws are of a different age and how old you have to be to get a driver's license, how old you have to be to get into a club, that actually directly affects music trends, being that hmm. you're able to be younger and going into a club and hearing the music being played in a club versus being in L.A. and not being able to get into a club. So you go to a house party and the type of music, the house right. party is going to be different from the club in Europe and blah, blah, blah. So anyways, I'm really fascinated to talk to you yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. find out yes. about trends that are happening over there. So, And it's definitely not the last conversation now. And I'm no, sure I will have you on the show again. So thank you once again for all the insights. And uh, Thanks, yeah, this is it. I wish I talked to Aaron longer, but I doubt that all of you would make it till the end of the episode if it was a three hour long one. 
and I hope that you in any case found it interesting and inspiring. As promised, I will try to sum it up and mention some of the key ideas mentioned in this talk. So first of all, I really want you to keep in mind this idea of uh, wanting to succeed in the industry you are in badly. And uh, if you're persistent enough, then uh, there will be success, there will be luck and anything uh, needed to, to, to achieve what you want. And Aaron provided a great example of how he entered the, the industry. And uh, besides that, of course, he mentioned a number of great case studies. I really like this one on the uh, musician with uh, the yoga classes. It's all about the niche marketing approach once again. And uh, uh, the idea of looking outside of your industry for inspiration for some interesting ideas is just crucial so if you look only within the music business and you only look into other bands and what they do to promote themselves you won't get way too far so this is the mindset of a music premier thinking like a brand and um working on uh, uh, learning the aspects of the industry and uh, uh, learning how to network like a pro. Building the relationships is very important and crucial and uh, you, you, you should not expect people to do something for you unless you invest into building the relationship first and bringing some value to other people. This is something that has been said many, many times before, but it's good to be reminded of the importance of building relationships first and foremost, and then using the help that others may provide for your project. Uh, but remember to build uh, the relationships first. So uh, if you have any questions or want to follow up on any of the topics, feel free to contact Aaron on Twitter and uh, in the show notes you will find all the links to the uh, projects of Aaron, to his uh, website. And you, if you are listening to this podcast on, on the go, on iTunes, for example, then the show notes are located at wispin.co slash forward WSR29. Thank you a lot for listening and see you next week. You have been listening to the We Spin Recipes podcast. Learn how we can help you improve your music career at wespin12.com. We Spin12.